We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Everything changes, continually, always, nothing is ever the same. It's one of the fundamental truths of Buddhism, but every day we act as if it isn't true, that somehow if we try hard enough, love enough, or we're talented enough, we can freeze our lives and stop change in its tracks. My witness today is novelist, writer, Zen practitioner, and non-profit consultant, Alan Lessig. His debut novel, The Trouble Seeker, was shortlisted for the Pharaoh Gumley Award for LGBTQ fiction. He belongs to a small group of witnesses for The Meaningful Life that I know personally here in Berlin. We're in the same writers and book group. I thought he would be a great person to talk about change because a few months ago, at the age of 68, when most people are settling into a life of sameness, he moved from the USA to Germany, somewhere he'd only visited briefly before, on his own, with only temporary accommodation and an appointment to p- apply for an artist visa. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, Alan. Your friends see you as someone who takes great leaps to new jobs, new possibilities, and you used to see this as jumping off a cliff. Tell me what you could mean by this. Well. For many years, my process would be that I would think about something, put it in the back of my mind, not pay attention to it, keep on doing what I was doing, and then one day I would change. I would just do something dramatic and change. A new relationship, a new place to live, a new job, a new this, a new that. And in my mind, I thought, oh, I'm not prepared. I just like jump off a cliff and make this happen. And that was how I thought I lived my life. That sounds a little bit scary to me from the outside. How was it for you in the inside? On the inside, there was something that always happened that I was ready at that particular moment, but I never understood it. So it was always a surprise to me. But somehow, even though real life cliffs scare me, and I would never, in fact, I don't want to go near the edge, But these kind of thought cliffs or cliffs in my mind, I knew that it wouldn't, well, I didn't know if it would hurt me or not. I would just go ahead and do it. You're talking to somebody who lived in the same house for 30 years (laughs) before I moved to Berlin. So change and me, if I'm up for it, fine. Other kinds of changes, no thank you. Now, you see this almost like a Zen practice, sort of just do it now. Can you explain to us what Zen is? I know it's a form of, I think it's Japanese Buddhism, if I got that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Zen was started in Japan in about the year 1200. The founder is a guy named Dogen. This was based on Chinese practices. And that the basis of Zen is to sit in meditation without purpose, which sounds pretty boring. Um, it does. <laughs> and it sounds like something ridiculous to talk about in 
you know, 2022, when there's so much going on and so much to do and a war right now and decisions to be made. Yet the purpose of Zen is actually to discover our true selves inside of ourselves. And so by sitting, we get to know who we are and we get to notice the connections that we have with the world. And most importantly for Zen and for Buddhism in general, we have a chance to see how things are changing in front of us. And I think of something called koans. Is that the right pronunciation of it? Yeah, yeah. Now, koans are a certain branch of Zen has koans, which are these almost nonsensical statements. Does the dog have Buddha nature? And actually, a famous koan, which is not a koan that probably your listeners know about, is if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? And so koans are a way to force your mind to look at the contradictions and realize it can't fix the contradictions. And so it allows you to go deeper into your body to feel or to understand what an answer might be. And I think we're going to have a few contradictions today. Am I, am I right in that? <laughs> we have contradictions all the time. I, I I don't think I'm going to like this, but I will plough on. So this idea of just do it is a Zen practice. So explain that to me. I think the simplest way is just to think about anything that you're doing, anything that you're doing. Just do it means put your energy, thoughts, everything into what you're doing at the time. The simplest thing I can think right at the second, brushing your teeth. We brush our teeth. Most of us hopefully do brush our teeth. And when we do, just brush your teeth. Don't think about the cat. Don't think about your family. Don't think about how brushing teeth is good for you. Just for that minute, brush your teeth. And that is just being present, just at that point, focusing on what you're doing, and there's nothing else to focus on. And so just doing is that, just whatever you're doing, just do it. There's a simple thing is if you're walking down the street, just walk down the street. But I would also say, if you're worrying, well, just worry. Just know that you're worrying right now. If you're upset, just be with being upset right now. That will change because that's the nature of our lives and the world around us, that everything does change. So even if you're just worrying right now and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say for this podcast and what questions Andrew might ask me, that's where I am. That's all I need to do. And then I can also just let that go. That's interesting because I've had a very grief-filled week. One of my best friends has died after a long illness from cancer. And my uncle, my mother's twin, who was 92, died. And although obviously that was expected, I've had a lot of grief this week. And I just remember walking from the U-Bahn station and I was feeling that grief. And in the past, I would have thought, well, you know, let's move away from the grief and let's think about all the things I've got to do today. But I just thought, well, it's not surprising I'm filled with grief at the moment. You know, I've got two deaths and it reminds you of all the other deaths you've been dealing with. And what was interesting was that, yes, for a moment I sunk deeper into the grief and that was okay, but it sort of passed through. 
Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, exactly. In this change of every moment, it's only when we kind of grasp on and we say, oh, I have this grief and so I have to feel it now or I don't have to feel it either way. You're trying to hold on to something that is going to pass, that everything will pass through. And certain things take a long time. Grieving a close relative, you know, a loved one will take a long time, but every moment of grieving is different. And I know when my partner died, I honestly spent over a year grieving, but it changed all the time. And each time, even when I was in that particular moment, usually within minutes, if sometimes even faster, sometimes slower, I would feel different emotions come up. And with grief, the flip side of grief is love. And so we grieve because we love and we love because we grieve. And in grief is love. And frankly, in love, when you're in love, there's grief hiding in the background there. So allowing the flow of the emotions is the best thing we can do for ourselves. And that's interesting because when you said I spent a year grieving, I sort of saw it immediately as a sort of block of solid grief from beginning to end. And actually, when we look at it, it was forever changing. It wasn't one solid block of grief. It was a whole range of different emotions. Right, right. And in fact, I could even just in that grieving portion of my life, uh, so to speak, I was doing fun things. I was happy at times. I could have happy memories that would come up and loving memories that would come up. So it was an experience and it was time defined by this special nature of it in a way. But the entire time there, I mean, my friends would say, why are you laughing? Like, aren't you supposed to be grieving? <laughs> but if it was funny and life was good, I would laugh. I could cry a couple minutes later, but I can laugh still. Just do it. Yeah. When you laugh, commit to the laughter. When you cry, commit to the crying. Now, I think we really need to sort of pull out this idea about everything changes because yeah. it's just two words and I can knock them off and we all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think there's something really quite fundamental in there that for the rest of this podcast, we really do have to understand the nature of change. So help us out. Okay, well, I'll start with a quote from Shunru Suzuki Roshi, who was a Japanese priest who came to the United States in the 50s and essentially started the Zen movement in the US and in Europe. And one of the things he wrote was, the evanescence of things is the reason why you enjoy life. So that if everything was always the same, frankly, we would be bored. It's the change. Right now, it's starting to become springtime. And each time I walk down the street, I see a flower popping up that wasn't there a couple of days ago. And it's that, wow, look at that. There's a flower that is the surprise, is the evanescence. I know immediately I could go to, oh, that flower is going to be dead soon. <laughs> And that kind of ruins that moment in that way. But it is that evanescence is that that flower is going to be here and then it won't be here and something else will be here. And so that's kind of the one aspect of change I think we all recognize, maybe don't think about it in a way and don't think about it as change, but we accept that 
the cycles of life are going to change. Other cycles of life, like our own death, I don't think we want to deal with that one. But other cycles of life, yes. At the moment, it seems everything is changing too quickly. We've hardly managed to get a pandemic out of the way, and we have a war that is threatening to get bigger and bigger. I mean, can't we slow this change down a little bit? I'm No. <laughs> no. The answer is no. What we can do is recognize just that that's the way it is happening. We can do things in our own lives to slow down our own lives. Change is going to happen, though, and that we can't change. So what can we do to slow down our own lives then? That's the million-dollar question. You should have a podcast on this. Oh, we are right now. Let's see. For me, and this is Alan's answer, is to have some form of spiritual practice or meditation that all spiritual practices are designed to bring you into the moment. And I can't talk about Christian or Jewish or Arabic or other practices, but I now know at least the Zen version of them. But just this idea that in that moment, if you're in a church, in a service, you are being infused by that church and the service and everything that's happening at that moment. And so that can bring this just this little space in our bodies. One of the things that I do love about Zen is it says that we have, all of this is in our body right now. All of this is within our ability to access. So I don't have to search far. I don't have to go to another place. I can, If I can come back to my body, if I can come back, the simplest way is coming back just to my breath and to, to breathe and notice I'm breathing. That's the simplest way to be in your body and to experience as best you can what is in front of you at that moment. So we said earlier that we're going to have some contradictions, and I think we've got our first contradiction. You know, you don't have to go somewhere else to come into the moment, and yet you've come halfway around the world. These sort of giant leaps that we make and that you've made – Do you think that's an escape from the world or coming to meet the world? I like that question. Of course, I don't think I'm escaping. Uh, (laughs) Whether others look at me that way, that's their looking at me. What I see is another kind of Zen concept of stepping back to look at where we're at and what's happening. So for me, I could not travel any place and I could travel around the world and still be paying attention to what's happening, to what changes are going on and what's happening to me. Because sitting in my own home with the COVID pandemic and not leaving certainly taught me that change is happening with my own body in my own home when it seems like I was stagnating and nothing else was going on. We've learned that lesson from COVID. Thank you. So Dojin, who you said is the founder of Zen, travelled to China in search of the perfect practice. And there was a paragraph from his writing that particularly appealed to you. I think it would be great if you could share that with us and then we can dissect it. Sure, sure. Yeah, he went to China and then when he came back to Japan, and this is 1227, so almost um, a thousand years ago now, he wrote this 
tract recommending Zazen to all people. And Zazen is seated meditation. And what he said, and I love this little paragraph, you should stop searching for phrases and chasing after words. That's something I do a lot. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Take the backward step and turn the light inward. Your body mind in itself will drop off and your original face will appear. So that's one of these incredibly poetic, somewhat bizarre, and really helpful Zen statements that kind of are all through Zen. Yeah. So let's have that last bit again about taking the backward step and your real face appearing, just so that we've got that in our minds. Yeah, yeah. So it's take the backward step and turn the light inward. Your body mind in itself will drop off and your original face will appear. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> let's take this slowly. The backward step, because um, it could be that the backward step has been, I mean, no, actually, I know that the backward step has been part of you arriving here in Berlin. So put the two things together for me. Sure. The simplest way to think about it is the backward step is a pause, and it's a pause to let you see, let you actually see, let you feel, let you hear who you are at that moment and what is going on at that moment. And sometimes in my life, and we'll get to this, I think, a little bit later, sometimes in my life, the backward step has been very, you know, either there's usually something going on that I'm trying to figure out in my life or trying to do. And the backward step I now see is really the first step to moving forward that it helps me prepare, helps me to see what's in front of me and what's going on in my life. So originally, I have this picture of you sort of running over the cliff, leaving (laughs) America, coming to Germany with sort of a plan, but it's a very sketchy sort of kind of plan that relied on things like bureaucrats putting stamps on passports. Right. But you're saying there was a backward step there. Yeah, the backward step... This time was COVID. Ah. The backward step was, I can't leave this place. I'm not, you know, I can go outside to the pharmacy and to the grocery store, but I'm supposed to be in my house. The backward step was, what do I do now? How do I face this? I think if we all go back to the beginning of two years ago, the COVID times, when we were told, oh, this is, you know, for some brief period, you're going to be in your house and you're going to be quarantined. And at that point, we all thought, well, this is impossible. That can't happen. <laughs> and yes. And after, you know, and then it was like, oh, it's not going to be two weeks. It's maybe four weeks. And then it was not four weeks. And, you know, we know the story, what happened. Yet somehow we managed and lived through all that. And during that time, I was constantly forced to look at, so what is my life now? How do I want to live my life? What does that mean? And in that process, I thought, okay, my life here in San Francisco where I was living is not what I want it to be. And it had nothing to do with COVID. COVID just kind of laid bare uh, the reality is that, yeah, I felt my life was stagnating. I wasn't doing the challenging, interesting things that I wanted to do in my life. And I wanted to go someplace. I wanted to live someplace else. Now, I had no idea how that was going to happen, but COVID itself was part of the backward step of just saying, okay, if you are here all the time in this particular place, does that 
make me happy. Some other people, it may make very happy. But for me, I realized, no, I'm feeling lack of a number of things that I want in my life. And so how would I do that? Most people in their 60s get more and more conservative. I was determined to leave the UK and come to Germany before I hit 60 because I thought it's hard enough now, it's going to be even worse. Is that just in our minds or is that true, do you think? It's in our minds and it's true. It's both. Zen always puts the two things together, each side. We decide, oh, I'm too old. I'm too this. I'm too that. Sometimes those twos are based on things health conditions that require you to be in a particular place or have a certain routine or a certain doctors or hospitals and therapies around you. Family, you have other people that you're participating with. Do you have reason to say, yeah, actually, okay, I'm in this marriage and I actually have kids. And so me going off to Berlin and leaving everyone else behind, probably not a good thing for healthy relationships with people. So we do have reasons to kind of look at and decide, does this work for me? But one of the things that made me, and this might help in this kind of age thing, because I was thinking about that just before the podcast, is that, yes, when we're younger, most of us have a certain amount of energy, a mixture of naivete and positive energy that the world is going to change, and I will help it change. I know I felt that way. I spent significant part of my life feeling that way, wanting to do things. And now I can look back and I say, wow, we really, like, we accomplished some things and wow, we really did not accomplish a whole bunch of things. And it seems in a way the world is turning back and becoming something else. What that is, I'm convinced, is my trying to hold on to something that doesn't exist any longer. So if I hold on to, in my case, the America that I grew up with in the 60s and 70s and try to apply solutions today based on that, I'm going to fail because everything is different. I think of Greta Thunberg. She is a voicing someone today saying, what have you done? (laughs) What have you done to create this earth that you're going to give to me? And I have to live in this and you don't have to live in it. You might die. You know, you will die. And I have to grow up and live in this. And I know she's controversial, but for me, the backward step is to say, Alan, you're stuck. You're stuck thinking how the world was when I was growing up, how you looked at the environment even then. And even though I knew the environment was precious and important, I was looking at it through my eyes of my growing up. Greta's looking at the environment saying, this is all going downhill. There isn't the hope I had because I had this hope, naive hope, but also the world was different 40, 50 years ago in terms of just how things function and the air we we were able to breathe. So um, the backward step for me is to say, you know, I don't know how to see it through these new eyes so well, but there's lots of people that do. And it's their time to take the step forward. And if I can help, and if I can be there to support the Gretas and everyone else in this world trying to face the new sets of conditions, I'll do that. That's my job as an elder right now to do that. But my job doesn't have to be the guy that was the leader pushing out, saying, follow me, which was my job for many years. 
what do you do about the energy levels? Because, you know, we did have more energy levels. I mean, it was easier for me to learn a language when I was 30-something than 60-something. So how do we deal with the energy levels? I suppose you've given us part of the answer by saying, well, we don't actually focus on trying to do the things that are now other people's jobs, like changing the world. But help us out with this energy level business. Okay, okay. Yeah, and and I would actually say our job is still to help change the world. We can never stop doing that. It's just that what our role in it is can be quite different. I don't really think about energy levels so much. I just think about what I can do today. What do I need to do today? What needs to happen today? So I need to study some German later on today because I want to get better at that. I have some work I have to accomplish. I have to go shopping. Those are things that are going to happen during the day. And I piece them out as I need to piece them out. But I don't worry about, oh, I can't do something, even though there's things in my life I don't do any longer. An example, and I I think this is also a, it's a fascinating thought for your listeners to play with. Are there things that you used to do that you don't do any longer that you don't even notice? Ah. And one of them for me is running. I never really liked running as a sport. I tried jogging. I used to do certain things. But I realized that it is so rare for me to run anywhere anymore. And so when's the last time, Andrew, that you ran? I learned a long time ago that I could cover more ground by walking briskly at a constant pace than trying to run and running out of air and energy. See, this is the interesting part. Did you ever think, I'm not going to run anymore? No, I've just stopped running. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's what happens in our lives. That's the energy issue in a way, or it's just the familiarity issue that we don't make a conscious decision that most of the time that I'm not going to run anymore, or I'm not going to do this or that. We just over time stop doing it. And then when you think about it, because we think we're in charge of our bodies and what we do in life. And you would think you made a decision. You would think there was some point where you said, as Andrew, yes, I'm just going to stop this running thing and I'm going to walk briskly now. But you didn't make that. You just eased into it. You changed with the circumstances. And so that's what life does, that we change into those circumstances. We ease ourselves. And most of the time, we're not thinking about things. So once you actually began to notice that you were taking a backward step, the first step in stepping forward, you realized you'd used it in other important situations like leaving a harmful relationship. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, yeah. Anyone who's been in one of those relationships that in the beginning didn't seem harmful, of course. In what way was it harmful? It was harmful for me in that I wasn't being taken seriously as a person in this relationship that it was somehow all about my partner. Also, that I was hiding things from myself that I didn't know consciously. And that allowed me to get into a relationship where I was the enabler, the helper of someone else. So I didn't have to look at my own problems. Oh, sounds familiar. I have quite a lot of clients like you in my practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's 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 um, quite normal. And it was only again, some stepping back that made me realize, oh, what's going on here? 
And at first it was just about the relationship. And then it, for me, it turned out to be part of my coming out process is that by stepping back from the idea of the relationship and the having to be there in it allowed me to then say, oh, what are these other feelings that are bubbling up inside? And with a therapist and with kind of my own focus on that and some group work, I realized I was gay, that what I had thought I was before, which was a person who could be gay or could not be gay, and but I was making a choice. I realized I didn't make a choice in that. I was just hiding from myself. And so that was, for me, this backward step was to have that space to look at my own life and then to discover what's there and what was presenting itself at that moment. So if somebody at this moment is in a relationship and they think that it would be useful for them to take a backward step, how would that manifest in real life? I think the best way is to find support for giving yourself the space to make that decision. These days, there's lots of resources online. For me, it was seeing a a therapist. Sometimes it, it can be as simple as doing something in your life that's important for you that has nothing to do with your relationship. Because we often feel very constrained in relationships. And so it's choosing something that this is just for Alan and I'll do this. And if my partner is pushing back, like, why are you doing this or you shouldn't be doing this? That may be a sign of, hmm, why is that so important to them that I do something? And that's, I'm assuming something that's just something I would enjoy that's not harmful for anyone else. Yeah, like, for example, getting an allotment would be the sort of example that we might have. An allotment is, uh, sorry, this is a very English thing, where a piece of land where you can grow vegetables. Yes, exactly. You know, if you've always wanted to get an allotment, and allotment stands for lots of things, but you've always thought, oh, I might get pushback on the amount of time it would take you know, I don't deserve that time. You know, all of those stories you tell yourself, actually, it could be that that allotment is the backward step that actually allows you to look at yourself, the relationship. And let's face it, when you're doing a lot of these things, there's plenty of contemplation time. You know, digging is very good for contemplating. Or it could be that you want to cycle from John O'Groats to Land's End, or perhaps not that far, but, you know, walk the South Downs way or something like that. That would be a good way of taking a step back, something for you. Yeah. In fact, one of the ones that I did after I finished another relationship (laughs) <laughs> I <laughs> stepping back happens. Yeah. Happens over and over again. Change. Right? We're going back to the change. It's continuous. I was ending another relationship and I passed. I was by my where I was working. There was an ice skating rink and they were offering lessons starting that next day. And I thought, I've always wanted to do this. I was in my late 40s. I've wanted to do this my entire life. My second thought was, oh, but I have to ask permission of my partner to do this because that was an issue in our relationship of like, what is my space and what's my time? And I went home and realized, oh, guess what? He's not here anymore. Alan, what do you want to do? And Alan said, I want to skate. Well, Alan, why don't you sign up for lessons tomorrow? So I realized that 
I could ask myself. But it was a funny backward step is to think after I broke up, like, oh, I need to check that out with him first before I do this. And I realized, oh, I don't have to check it out. I can just do it. And then I had, as you say, that allotment of time and space on the ice now. One of the examples I gave in a little blog I wrote was to say, when I left San Francisco, my backward step was to get my skate sharpened in San Francisco. So when I was in Berlin, I would have sharp, clean skates to hit the ice from the first time. Now, in the show notes, you'll find details of Alan's blog, but you'll also find links to his ice skating videos where he twists and turns and does all sorts of jumps. They are pretty impressive. So uh, go and have a look at that. Now, when we were doing that uh, Dogen quote, we talked about the backward step, which we've done already. But the second part of it was that our original face will appear. Now, what on earth is our original face? So when you first read or heard that, what came up for you? Okay, well, I was being more ignorant than I needed to be, just to sort of provoke you. But if you're turning the tables on me, I think that the original face is the real me, as opposed to the me that has been conditioned by society that says, you know, as a man, I have to do this. In my family, I was taught, for example, not to talk about emotions and feelings, you know, all those other things that people put onto you and you put onto yourself. Maybe if we saw those as sort of like masks, if we take the masks off, there will be an original face underneath it. So that's how I see it, but I'm not a Zen practitioner. So I think a Zen thought should probably be unpacked by a Zen practitioner rather than a psychotherapist. Well, I disagree with that because you said all the good things that I probably would have said. And I asked you the question also because we often want experts somehow to solve our problems when we all have the tools that are there. So yeah, I think this idea of original face, whenever I read a poem, because much of Zen to me is poetry, and whenever I read a poem, I'll be faced with something that, oh, I've never imagined that image before, or that expression of a feeling. And that's what's so wonderful about poetry. And so I look at this original face as kind of this poetic moment of what would that be? Because if intellectually, if you think about it, it's like, does that mean the face I was born with? Does it mean the face when I was in utero? I mean, where does the original face come from? I, I hope it's going to be a younger face than the one I've got now. <laughs> Change is always occurring, Andrew. And so <laughs> this is your face. <laughs> this is your face. This is my face. But I think the important about this original face is it gives us an idea that we've accumulated so much in our lives as we grow that we accept as what is. I mean, that's the part of it is like, this is what I'm feeling now. Yet at the same time, we accumulate stuff that isn't really good for us. We accumulate pains and sorrows that if we can't release and can't let go and can't experience in a different way, that becomes what we think our body is. And that becomes what we think our original face is. And so if we can 
begin to experience our bodies in a way that that acknowledge the pains that are there, but try not to hold on to them and acknowledge our body, how our body is right now. I mean, our original face is on us right now. We want to deny that. It's I, I, there are mornings I walk into the bathroom and I think, wow, you're looking good today. And there's mornings I walk into the bathroom. It's like, who is that man? You know, and how did he get so old? And what is going on? And wasn't I better yesterday? That's when I'm not looking at my original face. We've got a podcast coming up about how to go from role to soul with Connie Zweig, who's a Jungian therapist. That's coming up in a couple of weeks' time, and I think we'll go further into that idea of ageing and the original face. But you were frightened when you first went into Zen that it would change you into someone else. So (laughs) first of all, why were you uh, worried? And secondly, did it change you into someone else? So yeah, the answer is yes, it changed me, (laughs) which is great. But I had this idea about spirituality, and I had this idea, and honestly, I'll say because of how I see certain people who say they're spiritual people, who kind of put that out front, that I detected an unrealness in their experience, and an unrealness that try to ignore the pain in life and the suffering in life. And so that all is good and all is peaceful and all is wonderful. And, you know, there are people like that who can somehow live their lives like that. But I knew all wasn't wonderful. You know, right now, I know there's incredible new suffering going on, you know, in Ukraine. I can't ignore that. And I can only envision a world that that is part of the world as it is now. So it is part of my life as it is now to know that people are suffering in other places. And I was somehow worried that Zen would erase my mind or, you know, take part of my mind away. And instead Ah. of allowing it to, instead of allowing me to understand my place and my connections in the world. Another key, probably the key aspect of Buddhism behind the everything is changing is that everything is interconnected. So the the contrast is everything is changing, but it's always connected. We're always connected. So actually nothing changes, but we won't even explore that too much. It's just that Zen loves these contradictions. So one hand, everything is changing. And another hand, we're all connected, which means we're also all connected to all these changes that are happening. So we're changing at the same time. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the new things we're doing on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting everybody to write in if they've got a question. And I 
put uh, the question to my witnesses and uh, also give you the benefit of their experiences and my experiences. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, you will find a form where you can give feedback, topics that you'd like to hear about, and you can also send me a letter. I'm a regular listener to The Meaningful Life and inspired by how many of the witnesses have looked at their life and decided something needed to change. One recent guest calls it a call to action. I know I should have a look at my life and make some changes, but I am worried. What if I find something that makes everything worse? I have a lot of responsibilities, work, wife, family. I have to stay focused to keep everything spinning. Self-reflection, looking inwards or whatever it's called, feels like a luxury I cannot afford. And yet I keep listening to the podcast and now I'm writing in. So some part of me wants to be convinced. So are we going to convince or are we just going to tell him to stay with the uh, contradictions? (laughs) Well, I think that your listener notes a number of things. And one of the things I recognized in my path is worry is a complete waste of time. (laughs) It is, because worry never solves any problems. But you must have worried on your way to Berlin. What am I going to find? How am I going to cope? How am I going to find people who will welcome me in? Honestly, I didn't. I haven't let go of worry. I've let go of worrying about worrying. Okay. And so, yes, worries will come up. But for the most part, worries by themselves take away the valuable time that we have in this life, but they take away our energy from actually figuring out what to do. So a quick worry will just hopefully for me say, oh, there's something you need to consider. But the nagging in the back of my mind, continual worries are the waste of time because we spend a lot of time. We know, I mean, we certainly know certain people who worry a lot and their worries are out and they talk about them, the step back allows you to say, oh, gee, I'm worrying. This is coming up now. What do I do now? And what can I do next? And what is the step I need to take? I have a lot of nighttime worries. And I've told myself that horizontal thinking is no good whatsoever. So if you're lying down and thinking, which is nearly always worrying, it's always going to be pointless worrying. So I sort of tell myself, this is horizontal thinking, doesn't work. I can think about that in the morning. And generally in the morning, I don't really want to think about it. So I think you're right. The worrying about the worrying is actually really where the problem is. So how is this guy worrying about the worrying? Well, he said he was at the end of his thing. (laughs) He's worried that blah, blah, blah. I'm not making light of this in any way. But the simplest thing is, if you're worried, that's a really good time to take a couple of deep breaths. And in fact, what I recommend to people, there's a process that you take a deep breath inward by counting to four. You hold that deep breath, counting to seven, and then you let it go, counting eight. And you do that four times. Let's do it just once so that we can just get the idea again. So lead us through it then. Okay, so we're going to take a breath. And as we take a breath in, I'm going to count to four. One, two, three, four. Hold that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And exhale. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. If you repeat that four times, that will physically help readjust your body to calm down and to be present at that particular moment. And you might see after doing that four times, you might feel relaxed, which is really, really good if it happens. You also just might notice like, what is, you know, the thing that was a generic worry becomes something specific. And that's the backward step again, because you're then saying, oh, like worry is like too much to deal with. And there's, it's nebulous, but it's that, oh, how will I make money or how will the money appear or something like that? Then you can like, okay, well, what do I do about that? You know, like, is my job in risk? Well, no, it doesn't appear to be. So maybe I don't need to worry about that. Or if it is, what are the next steps I take at that point? So that taking that breath allows you to take the step back and allows you to see what is in front of you that may be actionable. As a therapist, I would say the things that are in our unconscious that we don't meet is going to come and meet us. Yeah. So this line, what if I find something that makes everything worse? What if you ignore something that uh, is going to make everything worse? And rather than actually engaging with it in your own time, it leaps out from under the bed and bites you. Because often when I have clients that come to me too late they have actually been ignoring stuff, often for a very long time. And then one partner normally says, you know, this has been too hard for too long, and they've given up. And so sometimes not going to meet these things means the problems have been going on for too long and have become too hard. Whereas actually, if you meet them, you might find they're not actually quite so bad. So I think that, you know, if you're worried that everything is going to be made worse, I think you should be walking towards that worse rather than putting your fingers in your ears about it. So I have to say, I don't think self-reflection is a luxury. I think it's a necessity and it doesn't actually need an awful lot of time. You know, just as Alan was saying, just doing those breathing exercises from time to time actually just sitting on the train rather than working on the train, you know, just actually walking rather than walking and thinking. Actually, you don't have to go up to the top of a mountain. You can meet all that stuff in the here and now. Just do those breathing exercises after listening to this. Yes, I would say that it brings back to me my discovery through Zen, which is everything that is happening is happening. I don't necessarily have control, but everything is still offering a possibility. And that when I can see that there are possibilities, even when I think there are none, I think especially in relationships, we get ourselves in places where you think, oh my God, there's no choice. There's no choice. There's no choice. That becomes our mantra. And there's always choice, but we have to have that backward step to feel like there is a choice. And often when people are stuck in that there's no choice, they think, oh, I either have to stick in it and and endure or I have to leave. And there are a million and one other possibilities within those two extremes. Right, right, right. 
So, Alan, I have to say thank you very much for being an excellent witness on The Meaningful Life. And I have to turn the tables on you and ask you, what makes your life meaningful? <sighs> well, I, I'll start by saying my life is meaningful because this world is really amazing and beautiful. Even with all the, all the issues, all the problems, there's an amazing thing about just life and the world that these days I allow myself to celebrate every day in tiny little ways. Yeah. And I also, this is contradictory, but I know that I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die one day. And so the time I have is precious and I don't worry about dying and I don't worry. I, I, I just know I can't change that. And so the question I do sometimes ask myself, if this was like in your last minutes, how do you want to be? I want to be appreciative. I want to be supportive. I want to be feeling alive because up until the moment we die, we're alive. And so I want to be aware of living as much as I can. So has moving to Berlin made your life more meaningful? I would not say more meaningful because I find meaning everywhere. That was the decision good. So far, this decision has been great to be here for me, to explore having new friends, to have a new version of Alan. There was an Alan that people knew or people who knew me as a kid have in their mind. And now people that I meet, like Andrew, have this version of what they think Alan is. And it's fun to explore that and to recognize that the old versions are still, I carry with me and they're still in my mind but they're less important right now because other things are important are coming up for me to do. So unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave this conversation, but you have two options. If you are on Apple, you'll find there's a button that allows you to buy the bonus material where we're going to be discussing this lovely idea of Alan's that the backward step allows you to find the moment where real change can occur. So we'll unpack that. We'll sum up all of this, see what each of us have learned from this experience. And Alan is going to share the three things he knows deep down to be true. So as I say, if you're on the Apple system, you can buy that as a specific item, or you could be one of our supporters, and then you get access to not just this bonus material, but all of the Meaningful Life bonus materials. And here is details of how to find that. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.